0: We obviously edited that just a little bit. Um, my name is Ed Griffin-Egan, and I'm and, uh, one of the leaders here at my church, and I'm tickled to death this morning. I'm glad you all are here, and I want to share <clears throat> some thoughts, I guess, this morning with you, have a conversation. And I, I want to start that off with a question that probably, maybe, you never asked. Maybe nobody ever asked you, uh, but but it is a question, nonetheless, that I want to start off with, and that is, Why did Jesus come into the world? And you're gonna if you if you answer it, you know we'd have 25 different answers in this room. If you ask your friends, you're gonna get a bunch of different different answers. I want to talk about a few of them. It may be you may say to save the world, simple thing to save the world. You may say that he came into the world to give us eternal life. Wow. What unbelievable hope lies in, in that statement to, to have eternal life. You may say to fulfill the prophecies. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, do you know the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the major prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. And I heard it said one time that <clears throat> that many silver dollars, one in 10, or ten to the 17th power, that many silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. So there's 300 prophecies that were fulfilled out of the Old Testament. How about, why did Jesus come into the world? How about to, re, uh, to redeem us? Redemption. I'm, I'm redeemed. That's a, maybe a big theology word. Maybe not. What it really means is, is to buy back something for a price. There's a price to be paid and, and, and the Redeemer buys that back. The reality though is that none of those four or five things that we just talked about, none of those are the way that Jesus Himself answered that question. Why did He come into the world? In fact, we'll find the answer to that question in the book of John, which is the fourth book in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, John being the last one. And we're going to find uh, where John records Jesus' words that answer that exact question that, that we asked. Um, let me set the stage, I guess, a little bit for you. Jesus had been arrested in the garden. He'd been on trial all night long. We find ourselves in John chapter 18, starting in, uh, in verse 33. And Pontius Pilate, who's the governor, is questioning Jesus. And so <clears throat> verse 33 starts. then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" And Jesus answered. Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about Me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to Me. What what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If My kingdom were from this world, My followers would be fighting to keep Me from being handed over to you, but as as it is, My kingdom is not from here. Okay, so then here comes verses 37 and 38. Pilate asked Him, so, you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. He's getting ready to answer that question. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. And here's what He says, to testify to the truth. If Jesus said this, do you think maybe that the issue of truth would be a pretty important issue? For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the to the truth. In fact, truth is such an important issue that 75 times in the New Testament, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this or that. I tell you the truth. And so, I want to tell you this too as an aside. We're going to run through a whole bunch of Scripture this morning. and Some of it we're going to run through quick. You don't need to write down every verse because you're never going to keep up because I'm going to run through a bunch. But what I want you to see is I want you to see the pattern that runs through the Bible. I don't want ever... I don't want anybody to ever lay their whole life on the line and their whole belief system for one little passage that you somehow made mean something that it doesn't really mean. I want you to look at the pattern of what the Scripture says in its entirety. And so I want to start this off in John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus asked the Father to sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. In John chapter 4, verse 24, God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. In John 8, 31 and 32, to the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said, if you hold to My teachings, you are really My disciples, and then you will know the what? The truth. And the what will set you free. The truth will set you free. We could, I could do that for an hour. Going through passage after passage after passage that speaks to truth. <clears throat> and then in Luke chapter 4, which is the third book in your New Testament, the third eyewitness account of, of Christ's life, it finds Jesus in Nazareth, and He's preaching in a synagogue, And he unrolls a scroll, and the scroll, the book that he's teaching out of, is the book of Isaiah. And so we find this in in verse 18 of chapter 4. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And that's an NIV translation of the word prisoners. The Net Bible translates that word captives. To proclaim freedom for the captives. Do you really think that Jesus went to Nazareth to free, to bust out of prison a bunch of crooks, a bunch of robbers and murderers and rapists and thieves and thugs? Of course, He didn't. Well, if not, what is it that, what is it that takes us captive? Lies are what takes us captive. And it's the truth that sets us free. And if you are on a journey trying to figure out the whole God thing, you may not even believe in God, but if you're trying to figure all that out, one of the first places I think that you need to go is to at least consider that, that the issue of truth is important, number one. And number two, to consider that, that truth actually exists. Absolute, objective truth exists. It also implies, though, that there are untruths and that, that there are lies. If there are truths, there has to be lies. In fact, what it really implies is that there is a battle going on. And I'm going to call this battle today, I'm going to call this battle the cosmic battle. And that battle is between the truth claims of God on one side and the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil on the other side. And this morning I want to talk about, and there's tons of them, but I want to talk about three that I think are are three key, uh, three key truth claims that God makes. I believe they're big ones. And I want to compare those to what the world would have you to believe, to what your enemy would have you to believe. This issue, this, this idea of truth, this battle, this idea of a battle, it, it invades every single area of life. There is no direction that you can turn. No field of study. no there's nowhere that you can turn that that battle does not rage. The Science, sociology, history, it doesn't matter. There's nowhere you can turn that that battle's not raging between the truth claims of God and the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it didn't begin yesterday. It didn't begin 500 years ago. It began in the Garden of Eden on day 6 of creation when one of the coolest things ever happened when God... God breathed life into man. That's what the Scripture says. He breathed life into man. He formed him and He breathed life into him. And Satan was there. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. And who did I say was there? Satan was there. And so imagine this picture in the garden. Beautiful garden. And lurking... Over behind something in the shadows is Satan, and Satan and and God just breathed life into man, and Satan says to God, "What is it?" And and God says, "I call him man," and Satan says, "Is it mine?" And God says, "No, he's created in my image, and I made him with a chooser." And Satan says, "What what's a what's a chooser?" And and God replies, He says. I want man to choose me. I want man to decide on his own to love me and to worship me and to obey me. And what do you think Satan says? Me too. Satan says, "Let's lay another truth claim in front of them, and we'll just see how they choose." And so, in Genesis chapter two, uh, verses six, verse sixteen and seventeen, and the Lord God commanded the man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so He made him a helper, a woman named Eve. And then we find ourselves in in Genesis chapter 3, and it says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the animals. The shrewdest. That Hebrew word is arum. And it means crafty or cunning or... uh, Or deceptive. Um, So the serpent was the shrewdest, most deceptive of all the animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. And Satan said, won't die the serpent said to the woman god knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat from it and you will know good from evil so satan god says eat it and you'll die and satan says no you won't die just go ahead and eat it it's okay and so when this happened all all of creation hung in suspense to see how we would choose would we choose the truth claims of God or would we choose the truth claims of the devil? And we chose very, very poorly. And that is the battle that rages today and every day. You know, and it all started with Did God really say? The serpent said to Eve, Did God really say? Here's the deal. Fundamentally, every sin that befalls me and you begins with the belief in a lie. And the belief in the lie begins with, did God really say? Did God really say thou shalt not commit adultery? But you know me and my wife have been having all these struggles and problems and, and this I met this girl at work and she just we start talking and she just kinda of understands me and I like talking to her and blah blah blah. You know, did God really say thou shalt not steal? Well Well I, you know, my company makes all kind of money and I was supposed to get raised this year. And, and, I, and I didn't get a raise, and I deserve the raise, and they're never going to miss it because they make all kind of money. And in fact, I'll put it back just next month. And so the the deal is that these events that happened in the garden, they had a profound effect on mankind from that point on. And battle number one that I want to talk about is about, about that, effect, uh, that effect, that effect that permeates us from the garden. And so it circles back really, back to the garden, what happened there, this this thing that we call the fall. So in the garden, man had the ability to, uh, to not sin. And man had the ability in the garden to sin. And he made a terrible choice. And it plunged the rest of mankind in, into utter ruin. And so it, with respect to using this thing that I'm calling our chooser, we still have the natural ability to make choices. I'm not saying that we don't have free will. I'm not saying that at all. We we have the ability and the senses and the things necessary to choose. We've got um, um, we can feel and we can desire and we can think and everything is there to make the choices. But what's not there is the want to to make uh, moral to make wise choices. You know, said another way, maybe I have the ability to choose what I want, but I lack the desire for true righteousness. And again, I'm not saying we don't have free will. But I'm saying that our free will, our ability to choose, is tainted and affected by the sinfulness of our nature which began in the garden. And don't let that mean something that it doesn't mean. Because I'm not saying at all that, that I am as thoroughly wicked in my actions that I could possibly be. And I'm not saying that I can't do acts of, commit acts of goodness. And I'm not saying that I can't Uh, do good works. But what I am saying is that the corruption of sin extends to all men. So that there's nothing within me, nothing that I can do that will give me merit in God's eyes. Just like there's nothing that I can do that's going to stop God from loving me. Let's look at what what the Bible says about us. This is Psalm 51. I think it's 51, yeah. Verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Listen, if our nature was unaffected and that there's equal opportunity to choose good as well as to choose evil, why is it that all people have sinned? The odds may be good, but there's never been a winner. So why is it that all of us have sinned? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say every other person has sinned. Uh, it doesn't say that that it, all means all. And then in Genesis six five, which is probably one of the most indicting verses on wh- you know what is inside of us at birth. And this is Genesis six five. He says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we, we look at what the Scripture says um, uh, about us, and let's look at what the world will tell you. L. Ron Hubbard. Anybody ever heard of L. Ron Hubbard? L. Ron Hubbard was the founder of the Scientology cult that Tom Cruise, who was in that movie, is like the chief cook and bottle washer of the Scientology cult. So, this is what L. Ron Hubbard said in 1980. Um, He said, Years ago, I discovered and proved that man is basically good. This means that the basic personality and the basic intentions of the individual towards himself and others are good. He went a little further, even, and said, Good is survival. Good is being doing more right than wrong. Good is being more successful than unsuccessful. You know, I thought, okay, here's what this dude says, and I want to know what uh, just people say. So I, I asked the question of my parents and I asked the question of some people at work just to see what people say. It'll blow you away. And, you know, most of the people that I asked said, well, basically, you know, people are basically good. I asked my, my mom, and she said, well, I don't know. I think probably at heart, people are basically good. They're truthful and kind and compassionate and, and loving. And I'm thinking, what world do you live in? But, but you hear that. Um, I asked somebody at work, I said, what do you think? Do you think people are basically good? It's an odd question. They think I'm a freak when I walked up and said, you know, do you think that man is basically good or basically evil? Anyway, I asked the question and, and, and you hear two different people said that it comes, that our nature comes from our environment. They said that evil, you are good, but the evil comes from some force outside of nature like poverty. Um, Another person said your environment and your circumstances change your nature. Psychologist Carl Rogers, he said, though I'm very well aware of the incredible amount of destructive, cruel, malevolent behavior in today's world from the threats of war to the senseless violence in the streets. Now think about this. This, Think about this Is the end of what he says. I'm well aware of the destruction, the cruelty, the hate, the malevolent behavior from the threats of war to senseless violence in the streets, but I don't find that evil is inherent in human nature. I don't find it. I don't find it, even though I see all of that. You know, one of the best definitions um, for truth that I have ever read or heard is a guy, R.C. Sproul, who is a a writer in Christian circles, S-P-R-O-U-L, R.C. Sproul, great writer. He said simply that truth... Is, is that which conforms to reality. And so what is the reality that we see in the world when the question before us is, is man basically good or is man basically bad? Look at the headlines. And I don't care if it's CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or the Atlanta journal Constitution, the New York Times. I don't just look at the, the headlines. You know, it's not hard to see the results of what happened in the garden the endless thieves and murderers and racism and 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 ISIS and all of the stuff that's going on—we can see very clearly the results of what happened back in that garden. If you spent any time with a toddler, you know exactly what i what I mean. You know, you got to tell you know little Johnny, don't be bopping little Sammy on the head with the hammer. I mean, they come out. I mean, I got two sons. I saw it from the time that they were this little. You got to teach kids. Socially acceptable behavior. Don't bite. Don't hit. you know, Don't steal. What does a kid do if another kid has a toy that this kid wants? He just goes and takes it from him because that's who we are in, inside. That's the way that we are. We're self-centered and selfish inside. And always, always share. How many of y'all have children? Did they just inherently want to share their stuff with everybody? No, you've got to teach them that. So if we're born naturally good, why is it that we have to teach children how to behave? You know, I look too at, at, if, at the, the people who told me about the outside sort of uh, in, environmental influences, and I think if my sinfulness is a result of some environmental impact on me, then salvation is of absolutely no concern. The reality is my sin uh, is, is my need, I guess. And to be fixed is my need because my insides are broken. you know My heart is jacked up and the Lord is the only one that that can fix that. If the reason that my heart is jacked up is from some... and I know that's not a churchy word, so forgive me for saying that. But if, if my heart is jacked up and it's because of some outside environmental thing, I ought to be able to pack my stuff in my Jeep and drive up into the mountains and get away from society and just fix it myself. But you and I know we can't fix it ourselves. So if I'm broken and in desperate need of repair, has it get fixed? This is going to lead me to, to battle number two. At least the beginning of the answer of battle number two, and that is that Jesus is God versus Jesus is simply a great teacher or a prophet or just a man. And no other person in history, none, has provoked so much study, so much controversy, so much criticism so much prejudice, or so much devotion as Jesus of Nazareth. Philip Yancey wrote this. He said, It occurs to me that all the contorted theories about Jesus that have been generated since the day of His death merely confirm the awesome risk that God took when He stretched Himself out on the dissection table. A risk that He seemed to welcome. God welcomed that. He said, examine me. Test me. You know, try to prove me wrong and then you decide. But you know what? You got to decide. I can't decide for you. I can't decide for my kids. They got to decide for themselves. And and the Jesus that we you me that we believe in or don't believe in, like it or not, is the Jesus of the Bible. Apart apart from this book, um We know nothing of any consequence of who the real Jesus is. Um, The the collection of books in that New Testament are the primary sources for what we know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those earliest documents were the guys that hung out with Him and they walked with Him 24-7 for three years. Uh, They were the eyewitnesses to His ministry. Even the skeptics don't disagree that this is the primary source for what we know about Jesus. And these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they invite us in... Um, they invite us in to conclude for ourselves who He really is. But we can't focus on just His teaching. Um, we can't focus on His good works. And, and clearly I'm not saying that the teachings are not, are not relevant. Of course they are. But the first focus has got to be on, uh, on His identity. You know, the challenge is not what did Jesus teach? The challenge is, and the, the answer that everybody's got uh, to, the, the question that everybody's got to answer is, who is he? That is the challenge. And so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, But what about you? He asked, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered him, He said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in Mark chapter 14, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the, of the, uh, the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to to themselves, they went berserk because He said, Son, your your sins are forgiven. They said, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in His Spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And He said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He clearly claimed the ability to forgive sins. And that's a right that God alone has. You cannot deny that in the Bible if you read the Bible. Um... He was not condemned for the, to, to the cross for what He did. He was condemned to the cross for who He was. Um, this trial was a one-of-a-kind sort of trial because it was in, in that the defendant was, was on trial, Jesus. The defendant was on trial not for actions, not for what He did. He was on trial for, for who He was. And he, he claimed equality with the Father. He claimed that if you saw Him, you'd seen the Father. He was was worshipped as God and he accepted the worship as God. He claimed divine authority. It was crystal clear beyond all doubt to the Jewish hearers of the day that he claimed to be God. We can make it up and say that he never did that and my mom and dad said that. and You can say that all you want, but the fact is, it was obvious to the people in the day that he was talking to, they knew exactly what he was saying. So a guy named William Beterwolf he said this, he said, a man can read who can read the, the entire New Testament and not see that Christ claims to be more than a man can look all over the sky at high noon on a cloudless day and not see the sun. The historical Jesus didn't live in a vacuum either. He's known at least in part by the way He transformed the people around Him. I want to know the Jesus who radicalized Matthew the tax collector. I want to know the, the, the Jesus who transformed Simon Peter. I want to know the Jesus who on that Damascus road took Saul of Tarsus who was a murderer who murdered Christians and just turned him upside down and inside out, renamed him Paul, and he wrote two-thirds of this New Testament. That's the guy that I want to know. And who better to show me and tell me and reveal to me who he is than the guys that hung out with him and wrote you four accounts of his life? Who else am I going to get the information from? This is the best place to go. So what does the world tell you about who He is? Judaism would tell you that He's just another in a long line of false messiahs. Rabbi, maybe a great teacher, but He was not God. Islam, just like all the prophets in Islam, uh, the Muslim world would tell you that Jesus was a Muslim. That, uh, that He never claimed... The Quran itself says that He never claimed to be God. Buddha says that Jesus was a wise an enlightened man, but 100% man, and very similar to the Buddha. The Jehovah's Witnesses would tell you that He was the first created being of Jehovah God, but He was not God. He was 100% man. Unitarian Universalists would tell you that He was a great teacher. Maybe He was a faith healer. Maybe He was the manifestation of God's love or something. Um, so the world tells you all kinds of crazy stuff about who He was. And so how does the truth claim that's on the table is Jesus God? How does it line up with reality? Wherever you fall on this, you cannot divorce His identity from what He said about Himself. He clearly made those claims which with that said, we're left with two alternatives. Either, let's say it this way, either His claims are true, and if they're true, you either got to accept it or not accept it or his claims are false. And in which case, he either knew his claims were false, which would make him a con man and a liar, or he didn't know his, his claims were false. He just woke up in the morning one day and looked in the mirror and said, I'm God, and he just was wrong. I mean, it's ridiculous to even say it. So, <clears throat> if, if we say that, that he knew his claims were false, he's a liar. If he didn't know that his claims were false, then he's a lunatic. Does that make sense? Well, nothing about his life would would give us any indication that he was either one of the two. The perfectly laid out set of moral instruction that he gives us. And I told you I wasn't going to tell you to write any passages down. Write down Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Those three chapters are the longest block of teaching in all of the New Testament of Jesus' words of how to live. A, a, A lunatic... Or a con man would not write that out. Would not lay out a, perfectly, uh, a, a, a perfect set of instruction of how to live. And he wouldn't live a perfect life the way that he lived. So given those three choices, and I'm going to say those choices are Lord, liar, lunatic, and I can't see the possibility of any other, uh, any other choice being out there unless you just don't believe that He even existed. Where does the best evidence lead you? And so I want to tell you when 14 years ago, I started a, a search for truth, and I told my wife, "I said, when this is all done, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to believe the truth." I said, "I and I don't. And I'm looking at it objectively, and maybe I end up a monk, a priest, a rabbi, a cleric." I said, "I, I don't. I don't have a clue, uh, but it's going whatever it is, it's going to be the truth." And 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 I needed the way my brain is wired up. I figured the first place to start was with a Bible. Never read a Bible before. And, and for me to believe this, I needed for every single word in that Bible to be completely inerrant, infallible, and true and paint an objective picture of, of reality. Um, what the world is going to tell you is that truth is subjective. What's true for you may be true. What's true for you is true. And if those two things are at opposition with each other, then it's true for you and it's true for you. I'm telling you this. One plus one equals two. If you believe in your... Way down in your belly that one plus one equals three, it doesn't make one plus one equal three. It still equals two. It makes you wrong. It makes you deceived. And and so, maybe in other words, your belief in a lie does not make the lie true. We are so shy about saying that there is truth and there is lies. If Jesus died on a cross or He didn't die on a cross. There's no in-between of those two things. And so... Now, when I picked the book up, you know, ultimately I thought I was gonna trying to prove that he was not the Messiah. And if you pick this book up and you read this book from page one to the end, there's a thread, a scarlet thread of Christ from day one to the end. And, and the only thing that you can come away with, if you read it that way, is he was not a liar and he was not a lunatic, and that he is in fact Lord. Which brings us to the last battle which is the cross and the events on the cross and the resurrection as a real historical event in history versus none of that is real. And I want you to, you're going to have to go back with me for just a minute for context's sake. Back about 2,000 years, two or 300 feet from Jerusalem's Shushan Gate in a garden, when Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek, identifying to the authorities... That He was the one that they were looking for. And what did they do? They immediately arrested Him. They beat Him mercilessly. They put Him on trial. They convicted Him for what? They convicted Him for the blasphemy of claiming to be God. And they hung Him on a cross to die. And at noon, after Jesus had been on the cross for three hours, the sun was darkened. And then three hours later, Christ's words affirmed His total, complete trust in the Father when He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And then He died. A physical death. On the cross, physically, He was dead. And in the temple, and we sang about this in the the second song we sang today, in the temple there was a curtain that hung between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And that that curtain um, represented, symbolized the barrier between God and man. Because in the Holy of Holies is where to, to... Ancient Judaism, that is where God's presence lived. And so that curtain separated, um, uh, created a barrier, I guess, between man and God that began when? In the garden with, did God really say? And so when Jesus declared, it is finished, he wasn't saying, what he was saying is that my work is finished. He said, uh, that veil tore in half that did what? That reconciled man with God. And God's plan had been executed. He had just bought us back. That word we use way back at the beginning, redemption, he had, just, he had just bought us back from the sin that began way back in that garden with did God really say. So imagine this, the discouragement and the disappointment that the disciples felt after hanging out with Him for three years and now He laid out dead in a tomb. The three years they spent with Him seemed like just an absolute waste. And they, they still didn't get it. Um, shortly before dawn, some of the, the women who were disciples came to the tomb to anoint His body to prepare His body for burial. Do you think they believed that He was going to be resurrected? If they were coming to the tomb to, to prepare His body for burial, they expected a body to be in the tomb. So when they got there and the stones rolled away and the grave is empty and the angel said, He is risen. Those are the coolest words ever. He, he is risen and the tomb was empty. So everything that I just told you from the garden at the arrest to the tomb is empty. It either happened or it didn't happen. You've you got to make the decision. Do you believe it couldn't have almost happened? It couldn't have, have kind of happened. Either it did or it didn't. And so what does the world say about this? I'm going to tell you. Generally speaking, the world is going to give you some crazy explanations which if you have to create a lie to Try to negate a truth. you got to go to crazy places. Hallucinations is one of the things you may read. That 500 plus people all had a mass hallucination that was the same, that, that, that Jesus was there. 500 people don't have a, a, the same hallucination over the course of six weeks. It doesn't happen. Uh, the, the, the second thing may be that the whole thing was a legend, but legend doesn't develop over, over the next day. Legend develops over time. And 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 Jesus's guys were teaching, excuse me, were preaching the resurrection virtually the next day. Were they not? They weren't preaching some deep theological academic stuff. They were preaching, "We saw him die and now he is walking." They're preaching the dead man's walking. They didn't have 700 commentaries to start preaching from. They just said, "Oh my goodness, this dude died and he is now alive." And that's what they were preaching. You may here that the apostles created this big deception the 12 the 12 guys well that didn't make any sense because 12 guys none of them cracked none of them became fickle you know none of them never ever let the cat out of the bag and 11 of the 12 died for it peter's crucified upside down still proclaiming the name of christ people don't die for a lie thousands of them were martyred for that and people just it just doesn't happen Generally speaking people are not going to die for that. The last one that you may hear is that he really didn't die, that he was resuscitated, not resurrected. Let me tell you what. The Roman soldiers that were on the crucifixion teams, they were good at what they did. They beat him almost to death before they even hung him on the cross. And then they poked him in the side with a spear and blood and water came out indicating that his lungs had collapsed. They were told to break the legs of the victims that were being crucified. Two of the three they broke the legs of. They didn't break Jesus' leg. And the book of John in chapter 19 says the reason they didn't is because they knew He was already dead. He died on the cross. I mean, it is obvious that He died on the cross. If He didn't die on the cross and He wasn't resurrected and He didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father and He lived 20, 30, 40, 50 more years, how come there's nothing written about that? The guy that rocked the Middle Eastern world in the first century, if they came down off the cross, they gave Him CPR and He lived how come nobody ever wrote anything about Him? makes absolutely no sense. And so, here, here is the reality. Confucius' tomb? Occupied. Buddha's tomb? That's occupied. David's tomb? It's occupied. Moses' tomb? It's occupied. Muhammad's tomb is occupied. Jesus Christ's tomb is empty. The verdict is in. The, the evidence speaks overwhelmingly clearly for itself. He is risen indeed. So here, here's the deal. There's lots of battles that, that, between the truth claims of God and the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think these three are the big three. Um, number one, that I was born a sinner. I had a hole in my heart. Um, that only I had a Christ-sized hole in my heart. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Number two, that Jesus is God. That He is not a liar. He is not a lunatic. He, that, that He is in fact the Lord and number three, that He actually died on the cross paying the perfect price to, to buy me back, to redeem me. And, and then He conquered it and it was physically resurrected and got up and walked out of that tomb. And He hung out with and was seen by over 500 people and ascended to the right hand of the Father. When I accepted these things as truth, when I believed them, when they came in my head and somehow they moved their way down to my heart, when I said to myself, oh my gosh, I really believe this. I really believe that what I believe is really real. I mean really real. It's not like some story, yeah, resurrection. It really, really happened. And so I took off one set of glasses and I put another set of lenses on and the whole world looked different. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, it, and love your neighbor as yourself had a radically different meaning. The truth claims of the Gospel message are earth-shattering, and they will, they will change, make profound changes in you. Your relationships, your outlook on life, your eternity, your service, humility, peace, grace, love, kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control, um, hope, faithfulness, I now actually truly really have the ability in Christ to display all of those things. And all what you've got to do is decide that all of that is real and that you want the truth. You can't be coerced into the truth. You want the truth and you believe the truth because it is the truth. And contrary to what Jack Nicholson said, you can handle that truth. And if you're a Christ follower today, the challenge is ask yourself, do I really believe that what I believe is really, really real. And if you're, if you're not a follower today, I challenge you to pick this up, start in page one, and read it and seek the truth. You can do what you want to 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 this. People have been trying to prove this puppy wrong for 2,000 years. You can do what you want to. It's going to stand up to that test. And so that is my challenge. And if you have come to accept that this morning that you're born broken inside with a God-sized hole in your heart, if you've come to believe everything that we talked about, I'm telling you that the Lord is, is just smiling down because when one lost sheep comes home, then the heavens just break out in a dance. So let, if y'all will pray with me. Father, I lift our, our church body up to You this morning. Lord, I thank You and I praise You for having a plan to fix our brokenness and then executing that plan on the cross. Thank You that when lies sometimes seem to take us captive, that You proclaim freedom, real, true freedom for us. Lord, You're full of grace. You're full of love, even when we don't deserve it. And Lord, this morning we give You all the praise and all the honor and all the glory for that. In in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank y'all.